Psalm 46, starting at verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolation on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Acts chapter 14, beginning to read at verse 19 on page 1112. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples. At times, church can feel exceptionally fragile. Whether you've been here for years or you're just poking your head in through the door to take a look, it can't have escaped your notice. A relatively small group of people gathering in the midst of a very large city, trying to play a part in an exceptionally large mission, a mission that Jesus has given to us, the mission of going into an unbelieving world and making disciples of Jesus. And the closer we look at church, the more fragile perhaps it seems. 
It can feel like everything would break if a few people decided to move on or if we lost our building and had to move elsewhere. And we at St. Helens, we're quite a big church. We have people employed by the church. We can put out slick publicity and maybe some Christmas events. Imagine how it must feel for our brothers and sisters in small churches or new church plants in areas where there is little Christian witness. If we feel fragile, how do they feel? And that, that is before we've even considered opposition from a world that hates Jesus. As we look around, around, we think God will reach the world through his people, through this, really. But churches feeling fragile isn't new. Over the last few weeks, we've heard about the apostles' efforts to proclaim the good news of Jesus in non-Jewish territory. After, after months of work, perhaps, the situation in the region is perhaps the definition of fragile. They've been opposed at every turn. And then, in our passage today, the worst happens. Look down with me at verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. It looks like the opposition has finally won. As these new Christians gathered around Paul, lying there, broken and bleeding, it must have seemed like the end of the line for the gospel. How could the gospel project ever continue if this was its chief messenger, lying there broken and bleeding? And even as Paul somehow survived, This frail and beaten man's message to the church was, there is more suffering to come. It's there at the end of verse 22. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God, he said. These new churches would have looked weak and felt very fragile. Verse 21 speaks of many disciples, but essentially the church probably looked like a couple of dozen people at most gathering in front rooms across the region. You can imagine these very young Christians looking around at their very ordinary church families and thinking, how could this possibly survive many tribulations? You can imagine them looking at Paul with the scars from his stoning and thinking, how could I possibly survive something like that? And to make it worse, by verse 24, Paul and Barnabas have left. Back to Antioch, back to their sending church. You might be questioned, you might be justified in questioning the future of the gospel project. Except that the tone of this passage is really rather different. Despite the fragile-looking situation, Luke's tone is one of quiet confidence. Luke is confident that these churches have all that they need to survive and to spread the good news of Jesus throughout the entire hostile region. Luke wants us to see the source of that confidence, the continuing work of the Lord Jesus to sustain his people. And he wants us to see the means by which Jesus sustains his people, the apostolic word and the support of godly elders. These are weak-looking means Uh, But Luke wants us to have confidence in them. 
so that we are willing to back weak-looking, fragile-looking churches as the means by which God will reach the world. So first, Jesus sustains his people. Jesus sustains his people. The way Luke describes Paul's activity in this passage leaves no doubt that God is at work. Uh, Look down with me again at verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. Luke isn't explicit whether this is a miraculous healing or just miraculous perseverance. But either way, miraculous is exactly the right word to describe it. Stoning is always intended to kill. Paul would have been left with absolutely horrific injuries to the extent that his attackers thought that they had succeeded in killing him. It is simply unthinkable that somebody who'd been stoned could drag themselves into the city gates, let alone be ready to begin the 90-mile journey to Derby only the next day. This must be a miraculous work of God. And equally striking is where Paul heads on from Derby. The most sensible route would have been to follow the coast round to Tarsus, get on a ship and head home. But instead, look at what he does in verse 21. When they had preached the gospel to that city, that's Derby, and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. It's difficult to imagine how traumatizing Paul's near-death experience in Lystra would have been. But for the sake of these young churches, Paul returns to the place where he was stoned and left for dead only days before. And from there, to cities that he'd been chased out of and rejected and threatened with stoning weeks and months before. This is miraculous perseverance. In fact, this whole 1,500-mile missionary journey in the face of persecution, rejection, confusion, and general danger is a testament to the sustaining work of God. Luke wants to make that absolutely clear in verse 26. And from there, they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had fulfilled. Luke calls back to the start of their journey, where the Antioch church had entrusted Paul and Barnabas to God's grace, to God's generous provision. At the end of their journey, it is utterly clear that it is God who has seen them safely through. These apostles, they know that it's God and not human effort or brilliance that has kept them this far. And it's for that same reason that they're willing to leave these weak and fragile-looking churches alone, by themselves. They are confident that Jesus sustains his people. Just as the apostles were entrusted to God's grace for their missionary journey, they entrust these fragile churches to the Lord Jesus' sustaining care. Look down with me at the second half of verse 23. With prayer and fasting, they, the apostles, committed them, the church, to the Lord in whom they had believed. They committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Uh, This isn't wishful thinking, nor is it hoping for the best, Uh, nor it is even like the thoughts and prayers that our political leaders put on Twitter in lieu of actually doing something about a crisis. 
The apostles, they pray because they are utterly confident that the Lord Jesus reigns as the king of all creation. And he is utterly committed to his people, the church, speaking of him. They know that Jesus is utterly committed to his people speaking of him so they could pray and trust that Jesus would sustain them as they did it. So they prayed. They prayed. And that gives us every reason to pray also. We can pray for our mission partners as they try to reach parts of the world with little faithful Christian witness. Our prayers are vital for their ongoing ministry. We can pray for church plants in this country, uh, lots of which I'm sure feel exceptionally fragile, far more fragile than we feel. They need our prayers. We can pray for our own ministry here at St. Helens when it feels weak and fragile. And we can know that the Lord Jesus is the only one who can sustain us. If you've not belonged to the monthly church family prayer meeting, uh, why not try it this month? There is so much to pray for. We pray because we can have this same confidence that the apostles had, that the Lord backs his gospel-proclaiming church and will sustain his people as they speak of him. Jesus' kingly rule and his continued work from heaven undergird absolutely everything in this passage. Jesus really does sustain his people today, Uh, That's why the apostles bother to pray for the church as they leave. But as well as praying, the apostles do some quite practical things as well to prepare the churches for their departure. Uh, The apostles, they speak to them and they appoint elders for them. Uh, These are rather ordinary looking things. Uh, They're right there in verse 22 and 23. Uh, But they're sandwiched between some more clearly supernatural things. Paul's miraculous recovery and the apostles' prayer for the churches. Lucas sandwiched these ordinary-looking things between these supernatural-looking things uh, to remind us that these are the means by which Jesus sustains his people. These ordinary-looking things, uh, the word and elders, are things that we have in our church. And they are, in fact, very important means by which Jesus sustains his people. Uh, We're going to think about them in turn We're on to the second point in our handout, if you're following along. Um, Jesus sustains his people, strengthening them through the apostolic word. Strengthening them through the apostolic word. We can often think of the apostles in Acts as pioneer missionaries, Paul especially. Making converts and then heading off over the horizon, leaving the churches behind. But in our passage, we see the apostles coming back to ordinary formed churches to sustain them, to strengthen them. Look down with me at verse 22. They returned, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Paul and Barnabas weren't just frontier missionaries planting churches they were utterly committed to these churches being strengthened too. In fact, Paul returned to strengthen these churches at least one more time in Acts, and then quite possibly wrote the letter to Galatians to them. He is utterly committed to strengthening these churches. And the tool that the apostles used for the strengthening of these churches, their words, their encouraging, exhorting, and teaching words. 
Through his apostles' words, Jesus strengthened these fragile churches that we read about. They were encouraged to continue in the faith. Uh, Notice that Luke used the word continue. Uh, These new believers had the faith. They just needed to keep going, to continue. You might think that having heard the gospel from Paul, possibly with a miracle alongside it, will be enough to keep these Christians going to the end. But like all of us, they needed help to keep going. And that's particularly clear from the specific thing that Luke records the apostles' teaching. They strengthened them, saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. It's hard to imagine the atmosphere as Paul taught them. The apostles who these believers had seen stoned, left for dead, who likely still bore the scars of this stoning, they saw him sitting before a bunch of new Christians and saying, this is normal. What happened to me is normal. Saying, if you're to continue in the faith, expect to be treated like I've been treated. Expect to be treated like Jesus was treated. The apostles didn't pull their punches. The way of the Christian is the way of the cross. That could look like lots of different things for us today. It could look like losing friends at school for following Jesus. Losing out on jobs or on places to live. It could look like being reviled in person or having your faith reviled in the news. Or maybe it could look like persecution like Paul, like our brothers and sisters in northern Nigeria face today. Whatever form this tribulation takes, the way of the Christian is the way of the cross. But even this warning is itself preparation. Knowing that we are to expect tribulation, it helps. Knowing that the end is the kingdom of God, it helps. And seeing the evidence of Jesus' sustaining work in his apostle, Paul, giving you this warning, it helps. Seeing this man who had been stoned, but was sustained, it really does help. Jesus really does sustain his people. These fragile churches, they needed strengthening. So Jesus gave them the apostles' words. In all of this, it's important to remember that ultimately, the apostles' words are about Jesus. They're about Jesus' ongoing work in the world. Yes, they are the apostles' words, but they are the apostles' words about Jesus. We don't need to guess what they said. Uh, Through the pages of the New Testament, we have the encouraging, exhorting, teaching words of the apostles recorded to strengthen the church down the ages. We have these words so that we too can strengthen each other with them. We can have confidence that Jesus uses these weak-looking words, these words on a page, to strengthen his church today. So do we strengthen each other with these words? Will we ever contact a friend at a church plant that will feel far more fragile than we do on a Sunday and strengthen them? with the apostles' words? Will we encourage them with these words that we have? Will we strengthen one another with these words? 
Jesus knows that we are weak. We need help to continue to keep going. And so he sustains us through his word. He sustains us, strengthening us through the apostolic word. But before they left these fragile-looking churches, the apostles had one more priority. Another ordinary-looking way that Jesus would continue to sustain his churches in the apostles' absence. And it's right there in verse 23, if you look down with me. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church. Jesus sustains his people, giving them elders for their good. By elders, Luke means qualified, older men who are given particularly, particular responsibility for leading the church. Uh, Luke's aim here isn't to explain elders' roles precisely, nor to lay out the qualifications. For that, you have to go to a book like 1 Timothy in the New Testament. Instead, Luke is helping us to see that the church structures that the apostles set up, this system of elders, the system that they wrote about, is there for our good. The system is there for our good. The key is in those two little words in verse 23, for them, when they had appointed elders for them. These leaders, whatever an individual church calls them, elders, presbyters, pastors, they are not pointless bureaucracy, nor are they autocrats appointed by the apostles to dominate the church. In their purest form, they are just older men in the congregation appointed to positions of leadership and teaching. And Luke wants us to see that these leaders, these elders, are for the good of the church. Of course, we are all involved in encouraging and strengthening one another with the word. But having elders means that someone is able to take the lead in ensuring that strengthening and mission continues in the apostles' absence. Given the relatively small pool of people the apostles would have had to choose from, it's likely that these elders looked ordinary, as, no offence to our leaders here at St Helens, ordinary godly men given responsibility for the good of the church. Obviously, leadership can be abused. The New Testament gives no excuse for domineering leadership, and the Bible gives strict standards for the godliness of leaders. All authority that they have is contingent on the fact that they live and teach what Jesus says. But we can have confidence that godly elders are a way that Jesus sustains his church. Elders are given for our good. Do we see godly leadership that way? How quick are we to complain about our leaders rather than accepting them as a gift from Jesus to sustain us? Do we find ourselves praying for the leaders here at St. Helens? for Anarin and for William as they seek to lead for our good. And looking outside our congregation, perhaps there are ways that we could strengthen the church. Perhaps there are ways that we could support the training of new elders to strengthen churches in other parts of the world and other parts of the country that feel even more fragile than ours. Jesus sustains his people, giving us elders for our good. Now, eventually, the apostles do leave the region, sailing back to their sending church in Antioch. And Luke does seem to say that they fulfilled the mission, verse 26. And from there, they sailed to Antioch, 
where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. It sounds an awful lot like they had fulfilled the work that they'd been sent to do. But how can Luke say this when thousands upon thousands in that region had not heard of Jesus? Well, to find out, let's look at the report to their sending church in verse 27. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. You see, their mission was a success story because the point of Paul and Barnabas's mission was to plant the gospel in towns across the region they've been sent to. Jesus started his work through them. He opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. The gospel was going out in non-Jewish regions for the very first time. So the end of Paul and Barnabas's mission is just the end of the beginning. The end of the beginning of the gospel's advance into what is now Europe, really. The end of the beginning. And that is why it is so essential that Jesus sustained Paul to strengthen these churches. They looked weak, but through these churches, Jesus continued his work of bringing people everywhere into his kingdom. And he still continues to work through his church today. Jesus still continues to sustain and strengthen his church today. As we've hopefully seen from this passage, the methods that Jesus uses to strengthen his church, the word and godly elders, they can look weak, especially when a church is small. We could find ourselves one day joining a church plant with a few people in a house on a Sunday, or a small but faithful church in a huge city. But wherever we go, whatever church looks like, we can know and have real confidence that Jesus sustains his people. He sustains them in general and through the word and godly eldership, through the word and godly elders teaching that same word. But wherever we got to in Acts, a new phase of God's worldwide salvation has begun. The gospel is reaching the very ends of the earth. Gentiles are trusting in Jesus and coming into the kingdom. We've seen that over the past few weeks. And God is reaching the world through his fragile looking, but Jesus-sustained church, the church that is bearing his apostolic word. But like every new phase in history, the prospect of ever-growing numbers of people becoming Christians has implications that has to be have to be considered, especially since these ever-growing numbers of people are Gentiles. It's the first time in history that great numbers of non-Jewish people have come into the faith. And next week, we're going to see the implications of this door of faith being opened to the non-Jewish world. But for now, let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have set your son, Jesus Christ, as Lord and King over the entire world. Thank you that you have given us your church a part to play in proclaiming the good news of the salvation that Jesus offers to the very ends of the earth. Please give us real confidence that Jesus really does sustain his people as we take our part in that work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.